you have your Bibles, uh, open it up to the book of Luke in the New Testament and the Gospels. Uh, we've got, uh, got it in your notes as well tonight. Um, and while you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. So uh, I told you that back in the spring, I, I injured my legs. And so for a while, I was in a boot and in crutches and um, just looking really pathetic. And, um, and I, so I couldn't couldn't walk, couldn't run, couldn't exercise for a while. And then um, later in the summer, I was released to be able to uh, walk at first. And so um, I would go out to the, to the river, to the dike where I usually run, and I, and I would walk for a while. I was only allowed to walk, not allowed to run. I'd go walking. And one day I'm walking along. If you've ever been up on the dike and walking along there, it's kind of nice. And I'm walking along there, and something catches my eye, and I turn to the river, and I see just at the very end this bird that's like dive bombing, right? You ever seen that into the water? And boom, goes under the water, which is kind of cool. Like when I'm running, I'm just looking ahead and down so I don't trip, you know? But like with walking, I notice I can like look around and notice things. And so I noticed this bird, and it dove into the water, and it kind of caught my attention. So I was kind of sitting there for a minute watching, and it's not coming up, and it's not coming up, and it's not. And then finally, it comes up above the water, and I was like, whoa, okay, because uh, I don't know how to do mouth-to-mouth on a bird. It's just really weird. So I'm just like, I'm going to watch. So I started walking, and I'm, but I'm watching the bird, and I'm like, I wonder what that bird was doing. It's just sitting there on the water. It's a big bird. I don't know what it was, but it's just sitting there floating on the water, and then it goes to take off. And it, it tries to take off, but it, it can't. It goes a little distance, and it just stops. And I thought, oh, you know, must have wounded itself or something, you know, and so it sat there for a minute, and then it tried to take off a couple more times, and every time it would start going across the water and kind of skipping and then it couldn't get out of the water and it was just stuck there. And I thought, well, you know, this is kind of sad, right? It's like going to probably, I don't know, die in the water there or something. And, and then it tries one more time. And the last time it tries to take off, it gets just high enough to see that it's holding on to a monstrous fish. I mean, like the fish is bigger than the bird. And he's trying to hold on, but he can't get enough lift. The fish is way too heavy. And so he stops and he's sitting there in the water. And at that point, I'm like thinking, you know, now if you're the bird, you got to be thinking, I would love some salmon today, you know, but uh, I could die holding on to this fish, right? So it's making me think, and I'm kind of walking, I, and I'm watching, I'm like, I wonder what it's going to do, you know, is it just going to sit there and die holding on to that thing, or is it going to let go? And, and finally it, it did, it must have let go because it took off and flew away, I'm sure it was hard, but you know, it could go fishing again. But it made me think as I was walking along, um, how sometimes in life we find ourselves in those situations, right? Where maybe there's something good, and we, we hold on to that thing. We think we need that thing. And we hold on to it with all our might. And, and even though it might be a good thing, like a meal, like a fish, it's, it's just not what we should be holding on to at that point in our life. And sometimes it's hard to let go of things. It's hard to let go. Maybe you've, maybe you've had a situation like that in your life where you need to let go. It wasn't even necessarily a bad thing, but it was just so hard for you to let go so that you could move on in your life so that you'd be free to soar and and, and free to live, you know, another day. And it made me think as I was walking along about how there's areas like that in my life. In in particular, I was thinking about preaching. Because uh, for me, I've kind of been dealing with a a kind of a conundrum over the last couple years when it comes to preaching. And that is that uh, conventional wisdom says that uh, sermon series, when a pastor preaches, 
should be somewhere between four to eight weeks long. That's what they say. That's what the experts say. Four to eight weeks long. Um, no shorter because it's hard to really develop anything, but no longer than eight weeks because uh, it's, it's too long and people get bored and, you know, they like, what's the next thing? And, and typically in churches where we're preaching for the most part, um, you know, uh, people-driven sermons and focused on us and our needs instead of God, instead of the gospel. Um, we're just told, you know, limit it to four to eight weeks. And so I've kind of, you know, at Gateway, we really haven't done that. If you kind of look back and see what we've done over the last three years, typically it's more like a, a six to, we've done some 18, 20-week series, but really nothing any longer than that. Um, and again, part of the reason is uh, it's, hard to main, it's, it's hard to imagine maintaining momentum in a series for more than 20 weeks. And so honestly, I've kind of lived in a, kind of a holding on to that, to that thought, holding on to that philosophy. And uh, we've done some, some longer series, some 20-week series. But, but for me, the problem was for the last couple of years, there's something I've really, really wanted to do. It's really been on my heart. And I've, I've wanted to do a gospel. And in particular, I've wanted to do Luke. And I'll, I'll tell you tonight why I've chosen Luke over the, the other gospels, but I really wanted to do it. But every time I sat down and I looked at Luke and I thought, if we go through the whole book, there's no way that we can do it in 20 weeks. We couldn't do it in 30 weeks or 40 weeks or 50 weeks or 60 weeks. I can keep going. We can't do it without any integrity. And I started to think like, could we, could we actually do that at Gateway? Would there, would there be like a revolt at some point? Would it be like, we draw the line at 45. It's time for a new pastor. You know, like I wasn't sure how that would go. So quite frankly, back in at the beginning of the year, um, I decided, you know, we're going to do First Timothy. Got to really put it on my heart. 18-week-long series. And I thought, I'm just going to listen and see if anybody's like, when's this, when's this thing over? You know, when are, we, when are we done with this? And I listened, but I, I didn't hear anything. That was, that was 18 weeks. We did another seven weeks in uh, Second Timothy, so kind of 25 weeks overall. And during that period, it kind of gave me the courage to think, you know what? It's time for me to let go of my fear, especially the fact that it's just based on, on man-made wisdom which quite frankly doesn't really amount to much most of the time. And so it was during that, that uh, in the winter of this year where I really decided to let go and to start thinking about Luke. And, and teaching through Luke presents a whole lot of its own challenges and some things that kind of I was afraid to deal with. And yet in the end, if you, if you want to, I, you could just say I let go of that fish. I dropped it and decided, you know, that I wanted to be free to follow God. Uh, into the next uh, couple of years when it comes to teaching. And so we're going we're gonna to go through the book of Luke. We're going to go through verse by verse. We're going to look at every verse. We're going to look at every story, every parable, every miracle, everything that Jesus said. We're going to go through all of it. Now, tonight is kind of an introduction. And uh, for me, it's kind of fun. I'm calling tonight kind of a, kind of a, a nerd fest, if you will, because we're going to go through a lot of details. And I put some of them in your notes for you. And there's so much more that we could talk about, and we will in the weeks to come. But I want to just give you a little bit of an introduction tonight. Um, and first of all, in the New Testament, you'll know at the beginning, we have what we call four gospels. A gospel is basically a, a biographical account 
of the life of Jesus. That's what a gospel is. It, it's uh, focused on the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the, the words of Jesus. And, and each one of the four gospels have a slight different perspective or, or emphasis. Um, and, and they have some unique details. And, and they're kind of based on an intended audience. And so conventional wisdom will tell us this, that uh, the book of Matthew was written primarily to Jews. Um, with their unique background and their unique perspective. Uh, the Gospel of Mark was written to those uh, who were Romans, who, who had an entirely different way of thinking about life and, and, and philosophy and all of that. The book of John is written primarily to the Greeks, and the book of Luke is written to the, to the Gentiles. Gentiles are people who had no, no Jewish culture. They, they didn't grow up reading the Old Testament. Uh, they didn't go to synagogue, go to temple. They didn't observe the Sabbath. Uh, they didn't know the law, study the law. It was a, a whole different way of thinking. Uh, we're probably more like the Gentiles, if you will, than any other of these, of these groups that we look at. So one of the reasons I like Luke is because it matches really well for most of us, for, for our upbringing, for our culture, now, Luke's gospel is the longest of all the gospels. It contains 1,151 verses. And here's what's really cool about Luke. Uh, half half of, the, of the verses in Luke contain the words of Jesus, or nearly half. Um, so basically about every other verse has the words of Jesus. So if you want to know what Jesus said, the book of Luke is the, is the book to study. The average person can read the entire book in about two hours. So if you spent 15 to 20 minutes a day reading the gospel, you could read the book in a week. If you read it every week during this series, you'd read it a lot. So, um, so if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to bookmark Luke and to start reading it. If you don't, We'd love to give you a Bible. We have Bibles back at the Welcome Center. Some, there's some Bibles underneath some of the chairs. Just help yourself take one. The book of Luke. So let's talk a little bit about this. First of all, let's, let's talk about the author. Um, the author's name, as you might already guess, is uh, Luke. And in chapter 1, verse 1, we find something a little bit different than a lot of books in the New Testament. Um, it starts this way. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Now, the reason I read you that is to notice what isn't there. Usually in the New Testament, when a, when a book starts, you get the author identifying himself. In the book of Luke, the author does not identify himself. doesn't tell us who wrote the book. So how do we know that Luke wrote this gospel? Well, a couple of clues. One is, we know uh, by reading the book of Luke and the book of Acts that they were written by the very same person. Um, they're kind of a prequel and a sequel, but not a lame sequel like Attack of the Clones. It's like a good sequel, all right? So like, you know, it's like without Jar Jar Binks is what they say. So uh, in, in Acts, Luke is clearly identified as the author. And since we know that both books were written by the same person, it's one of the ways that we know that it was written by Luke. Uh, both books, both the, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, are historical biographies. Luke tells the story of Jesus... And Acts tells the story of Jesus' people. And so when you get to the end of the book of Luke, you can just go right to the book of Acts and it picks right up where the book of Luke left off. Both of them as well are written to the same individual. It's kind of an interesting thing. The, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written to one person. We kind of get to enjoy reading it as well, but they were both written to a man named Theophilus. 
the sophistication, the grammar in both books is the same. And as well, the, the early church fathers of the second and third uh, century, like Justin Martyr and Tertullian and, and uh, Clement of Alexandria, all agreed that the author was Luke. It's probably written about 62 AD, and Acts is probably written about a year later. Now, this is about 30 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And this turns out to be very important because some of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, some of them are still alive. And so Luke can interview them and, and, and investigate, and then he writes these books. Combined, if you take the book of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts that were both written by Luke, what you find is they make up the largest part of the New Testament. Now, Paul actually wrote more books. He, he wrote either, either 13 or 14 if he wrote the book of Hebrews, which he probably didn't, but that's just my opinion. Um, but even if he did, altogether, that still isn't as much material as what Luke wrote because a lot of Paul's uh, writings are just shorter letters. And so Luke is the, is the biggest contributor to the New Testament, Luke. Um, he, in terms of words and, and sentences and verses, he wrote more than anyone else. He uses lots of words. He's very descriptive. He has a lot of stuff to say, a lot of historical detail. Now, we actually only know a little bit about Luke. His, his name is, is a Gentile name. So we have a lot of reasons to believe that, Juke, uh, that Luke was a Gentile. I don't know who Juke is. Uh, that Luke was a Gentile. Um, probably not Jewish, probably a Gentile. Um, and that comes out in his writings uh, because he gives people a lot of inside information to Jewish culture. Luke is actually mentioned three times in the New Testament. Um, Paul mentions him several times. And Paul, by the way, speaks very, very highly of Luke. So if, if you know a little bit about Paul, we talk about Paul a lot. Paul started out as a guy who hated Jesus and he hated Christians. So he was, he was persecuting Christians. And, and then you might remember he was having them thrown in prison and having them put to death. And then like Jesus says, that's enough. And so he you know, comes down off his throne and knocks Paul off his horse and blinds him and they have a little, you know, come to Jesus meeting and, uh, you know, he, he gets converted and um, he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And so kind of here's the irony. At first he's killing Christians and then God comes along and says, well, now you're going to be a Christian and your job is to make Christians. Your job's going to now go around and you're going you're gonna to preach the gospel, which I just laugh every time I think about that, right? So be careful what you say you'll never do, right? So like he hates Christians and now he's, he's helping people become Christians. But here's the thing about Paul, right? Like he's always getting into trouble. He's going into towns and starting riots. He, he's getting stoned a lot, like with actual stones, not like Washington State stoned. And, and like he's in, he's in prison and he's out of prison and he's in prison. And, and, and what's happening is at first, Paul's like this rock star of Christianity. And after a while, it's kind of dangerous to be around Paul. So people start to avoid Paul, like, because he's in prison a lot, and it's dangerous to go see Paul, because he might throw you in prison too. And at one point, Paul says that everyone had abandoned him. Everyone is like, that guy's too hot to touch, to be around. He's in prison, and he says everyone had abandoned him except one person, and that person was Luke, the guy who wrote this book. Luke is just this, he's like this humble man 
who's assisting Paul. He's, he's a traveling companion. As we'll talk about, he's Paul's physician and Paul needed a physician. Um, you know, he, he's, he spends time with him in prison. He's a researcher. Um, and he was, a, as we said, he was a, actually a medical doctor. In Colossians 4.14, in fact, it refers to Luke this way, Luke, the beloved physician. It's the way a lot of people think about Luke is not just a physician, but a beloved physician. Um, now, now, what's funny to me about this is sometimes you'll hear like on the news about people who claim to be Christians and say, you know, Christians don't need doctors, right? right? You don't need medicine. Just, you know, just pray and just have faith. But you realize that the biggest contributor to the New Testament was a doctor? The biggest contributor. So here's a man who studied medicine, who studied science, who was well-educated, and a man who believed in Jesus, which is a pretty good combo when you think about it, right? Because if you're sick, you can go to him, and he can treat your body, and he can pray for your soul, right? Like, I had a doctor like that this summer as I was going through my leg stuff. A doctor was a believer who's part of our church, and I would go to her, and she'd like work on my legs, and then I know that she'd be praying for me, which is a kind of a great great doctor, great setup. And the reason I mention this is because I think we live in a culture today where a lot of us, when we think about like, why do we get an education, right? And why do we get skills? It's so that we can get a job. And then with that, with that education and with our skills, we can get a job and then we can get a paycheck. And what do we do with the paycheck? Well, we'll buy stuff. And then if we have enough money, we'll buy more stuff. In other words, we think I get educated, I get a skill for me. Here's Luke a man that's highly educated, a man who's highly skilled, and he walks away from that mindset, that mindset that says, I got all this stuff so that I can benefit. And he walks away from his private practice and his income in order to investigate Jesus and travel and write the gospel of Luke and write the book of Acts. So here's a man who uses his education for the cause of Jesus, who uses his intellect to forward the kingdom of God. So one of the challenges I would make to you right off the bat is to just stop thinking about how to make money with your skills and with your education and start to think, how can I use these things to honor the Lord Jesus Christ? How can I use my education to further the gospel, to, to, to build the church, to serve other people? And, and quite frankly, for many Christians, that is a foreign thought. We're like, well, I, I mean, I go to the weekend, uh, to church on the weekend, and I write a check, and I throw it in the offering, and then the rest of the week I go out, and, and money's all about me. But Luke is a very different kind of guy here. Now, in terms of what we know about Luke, um, we don't really know much more from Scripture. However, there is an ancient commentary that was written about 100 years after uh, Luke passed away. And this is extra biblical. It's, it's not in the Bible, so some of it's speculation. But I wanted to just give you a little piece of it because it's what a, a lot of scholars today kind of believe was true about Luke. Um, it tells us this. Uh, this is from a commentary written about 100 years after Luke, and it's, it's actually a commentary on the book of Luke. It says, indeed, Luke was an Antiochenes Syrian. So in other words, he, he lived in Antioch. Scripture tells us that. We know that about him. So that's where he's from. Uh, and it says that uh, he was, sorry there, it says that he was a doctor by profession, as we've talked about, and a disciple of the apostles. So um, Luke was not in, uh, a disciple of Jesus. 
This is important to remember. Um, he, was a, he was a follower of the followers of Jesus or a disciple of the disciples of Jesus. So he knew Peter and James and John and Matthew. He was the companion of Paul, but he was not a follower of Jesus while Jesus was alive. The commentary goes on and says, later, however, he followed Paul until his mart- martyrdom. So he was a devoted friend to Paul, even when, even when it was hard to be a friend to Paul, even when no one else wanted to be a friend to Paul, which makes me think, you know, are, are, are we friends like that? Like, it's easy for us to be friends with people when it, it benefits us. But how good of a friend are you when the other person just has a difficult life and, and, you know, the only way you can be with them is to go visit them in prison and they don't have much to offer you anymore. But, but this is Luke. He's just this humble guy who sticks in there with his friends. And it says that he was serving the Lord blamelessly, which is awesome. That doesn't mean he, he never sinned. But it means like when, when people saw him, he, he was somebody who was holy. He was somebody who was like Jesus Christ. And again, I think of how different that is today. I, I don't know about you, but it seems like churches are just kind of celebrating anymore the whole kind of, you know, a lot of churches are like, we're just messed up people living messed up lives and just celebrating that. And yet when I look at scripture, scripture doesn't celebrate our messed upness. It, it celebrates the work that God has done in us. That's what the Bible celebrates, that we're new people, that we're becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're repenting of our sin. And this is what the gospel is. And it says he was a man who served the Lord blamelessly. It also says he, he never had a wife. Now, when I think about that, here's what I think about. I think about how much I love my wife and how I cannot even imagine, I can't even fathom being in ministry without my wife. You have no idea what a mess we would be without my wife. My wife is a person who serves you behind the scenes by saying things like, honey, I wouldn't say that. Honey, I wouldn't do that. You know, you have no idea all this stuff. Like my wife serves you so much. Now, on the other hand, for Luke, being single allowed him to, to travel and to serve and to sacrifice for the gospel in a unique way. But, but don't you think that if he wanted to, Luke could have found a wife? I'm, I'm sure that he could have. He could have gone on match.com, right? And he could have been, this could have been his profile. Like, hey, I don't know if you've read the Bible, but if you have, I, I wrote one of the books. And I got a sequel that's about to, to hit the shelves. It's going to be hot. It's going to be really good. And did I mention I'm a doctor? You know, like, so I imagine, but, but he never did. He never got a wife and he never fathered children. Which again, I'm like, that, that's a big sacrifice. I have three kids and, and kids are a blessing. But here's one of the things, again, that I thought about in terms of ministry and having kids. Children are like this sanctifying agent in a parent's life. Am I not right, parents? Like, when I think about all the, all the ways that God has, has challenged me and grown me and confronted my sin through my, through my children. And I thank God for that. Because God uses our kids to help us grow and to sanctify us. And then it goes on and says this, and he died at the age of 84, which is about two times the average life expectancy. So this guy lived a long time, although not quite as long as the Apostle John, but a long time. Even today, 84, it's a, it's a pretty good age. But it says this, he was full, full of the Holy Spirit. And I thought about this. I thought, what a, what a great thing to say about a man, about a woman, that they were full of the Holy Spirit. Like, and it made me think, wouldn't it be great if maybe God would use the book of Luke 
to fill us with his Holy Spirit. Like, like maybe God will use our time together to make us people whose character is saturated with the Spirit of God. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it be great if we became people whose every word reflected the Holy Spirit of God? That, that the Spirit filled our worship of Christ and, and, and our marriages and, and our actions? So this is Luke, and we don't know a lot about Luke. And part of the reason we don't know a lot about Luke is because Luke didn't write about himself. He wrote about Jesus. He talked about Jesus and the gospel. But that's Luke. And the gospel of Luke was actually written to someone. It was written to a man named Theophilus. In uh, verse 3, he says this, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So the recipient of the gospel and the book of Acts, like, think about this. The, 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 the majority of the New Testament was written to one guy, a guy named Theophilus. Now, again, we don't know a lot about Theophilus, but here's what, here's what scholars speculate about, about Theo. First of all, um, he has a Gentile name, and his name means one who loves God. So that's pretty cool. Like, so Theophilus is a, is, is a cool name. And I was thinking, like, for those of you, maybe if you're expecting, um, you know, consider Theophilus. It's a good name. That's a, like some, in fact, in the, here's just a little challenge. Like in the course of this series, there are some of you in here um, who are married or maybe engaged. Um, I figured out you could have two kids before this series is over and you could name one of them Theo if you're a taker. So, um, and, his, and, and he calls him most excellent, which isn't like a Bill and Ted reference. This is a, this is a, government, <laughs> this is a government title. It's a, a title they used for Roman officials. So we're guessing this man was uh, an employee of the government, um, an official of Rome. Rome, which means he's probably wealthy, he's well-educated, and he's affluent. And we also think he was probably a new believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a new believer, um, he asked some, some questions. Now remember, this is, this is like 30 years after the uh, death, burial, uh, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So he can't like go on the internet and, and check out Bible studies, go down to a Christian bookstore, um, and check out all the latest heresy. Uh, so um, he's, a new, he's a new convert, sorry. And, and he has some questions, right? He's got some questions like, so did Jesus really claim to be God? You know, maybe he's thinking stuff like this. Like, did Jesus, I heard he walked in water, but, but did he? And, and I, I heard some guy say he fed thousands of people with like a, you know, a Lunchable. Is that, did he really do that? Did he really die on a cross? Did he really rise from the dead? Can he, can he really save people? And now understand, in those days, to be a Christian, um, especially a Christian who was employed by the Roman government, it was a, that was a dangerous thing. As a Roman official and as a citizen of Rome, you had to declare that Caesar is Lord. But of course, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't do that. You would only claim that Jesus is Lord. Um, as, as a Roman citizen, your first allegiance was supposed to be to Rome. But as a Christian, your first allegiance is to be to the kingdom of God. Uh, uh, in, in, in the Roman Empire, they believed in polytheism, like there's many, many, many gods and many roads to God. But as a Christian, you would have to say, no, there's only one way to God, only one, Jesus Christ. And this could get you in a, a lot of trouble. It could get you fired. It could, you know, you could lose your home and, and you, could, you could end up in prison. 
you could end up being put to, put to death. And so you, you can imagine like Theophilus, he comes to Jesus and he's like, you know, he's on his Facebook page. He's like, I think I'm going to put that I'm a Christian, but, but should I? Because I could get in a lot of trouble for that. So Theophilus wants to be sure about Jesus Christ. So he does something very interesting. We think what he does is he reaches out to a friend of his named Luke, an associate who's a, also a fellow Gentile, a well-educated man who has access to the apostles. And he goes to Luke and he, he tells them, we think, he says, listen, I, I w- I'll fund you to go investigate the facts about Jesus because I don't have time as a Roman official, but, but what, if, what if I hired you? What if I became your benefactor? Back then, they had things called benefactors. A benefactor would be some rich person who would go to, they might go to a musician and say, I want to hire you to write a piece of music for me. Or maybe an author and say, I want to hire you to write a book for me. Or, or hire them to, I want you to build a building for me. And what they would do is they would pay for everything associated with that thing. And then when it was done, it would be dedicated to the benefactor. And that's what's happening here at the beginning of this book. Theophilus has put up the money for this book to be written. And so now Luke's just kind of giving him his due as a benefactor. So, so he would pay for Luke's living expenses and travel expenses and supplies. And this would allow Luke to shut down his medical practice for some time and begin to travel and track down eyewitnesses and do research. So Theophilus is a guy, we believe, with position and with wealth. And now think about this. He could have spent his money on all sorts of stuff. He could have went down and got a tricked out chariot, right? Like, you know, for his garage. He could have, he could have bought another vacation home on the beach or, you know, gotten like granite in the kitchen or, well, now it's quartz. He could have got quartz in the kitchen and all that kind of stuff. But instead, here's what he decides. I'm going to take some of my money and I'm going to find out about Jesus, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to hire somebody who's qualified to do some research and I'm, and and who's educated and I'm going to pay them. Think about this. I'm going to pay somebody to travel and research the facts about Jesus. And it's going to cost me a lot of money, but he decides to do it. And here are the results of his financial sacrifice. Years, 2000 years later, we have the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts together, the largest part of the New Testament. And, and billions of believers today get to read these books and study these books and be blessed by these books and grow in them because this man had the vision. This man was led and obedient by, to the Holy Spirit to pay for these books to be written. And it just makes me want to ask you the question. So what are you doing with your money right now? What are you doing with your wealth and, and your intellect and your skills and your time? How are you using those things to make a spiritual impact on your world? How are you investing in in the people around you, in your oikos, in in your marriage, in your kids, in your church and community spiritually? See, my prayer for Gateway is that we would be a church that would be generous, that we would be generous when it comes to supporting the gospel. And not only that, but not only that we would do things to support the gospel right here and, and now, but that we'd be the kind of people like Luke who would leave a legacy, something that would live beyond us. So we've got Luke and we've got Theophilus and, and then there's a kind of a mission, if you will, for what's going on here. And the mission for Luke is to investigate the Lord Jesus Christ. So Theophilus has, is wondering, I think. He's, he's got some questions, it seems like. And again, maybe some questions like, 
So did a virgin really give birth, right? Because if a virgin gave birth to a child, that would be something, right? Like Luke's like, if that's true, because I heard that story. If that's true, that would be something. We should, probably, we should probably find that out. We should check that out. If Jesus really walked on water, I think that would be something we'd want to know about. If he, if he fed thousands of people, if he, if, he could, if he could yell at a storm, if he could yell at the rain and it would stop, That'd be a skill I'd like to have, you know, especially like right now. I'm going to go outside and yell at the storm. Like, did he really cast out demons? Was he really crucified? Did he really raise from the dead? And, 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 and Theophilus is like thinking, we've got to investigate this stuff. We've got to find out the, the facts. So Luke begins to collect facts and, and collect data. And how does he do this? Now, remember, he wasn't an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. So in Luke 1, he tells us this, gives us some clues here. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. He's talking about the things Jesus did. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So he's gathered his facts from three sources. I've got them in your notes for you. The first is he gathers facts from what we call oral tradition. So here's something that you got to understand. In those days, only about 5 to 10% of the population were literate. Just 5 to 10% could read and could write. So most information and most facts in those days were passed down through what we call oral tradition. So, so someone would be designated as a sort of curator for a family, like a family might pick somebody and say, it's your job to be a, a, a curator of the facts of our family and the history of our family or, or of a, a city um, or maybe of, a, of, a, of facts of, of some discipline. And it would be that person's job. They would keep the facts straight. If people were telling stories where the facts weren't straight, they would you know, go and say, no, those aren't the facts. And they would correct people. And then their job was to pass that information along to someone else because most people didn't read and write in those days. So most information was passed down orally. People had to store it in the hard drive up here. And so what Luke did is he interviewed people who were keepers of particular aspects of Jesus' ministry and, and of Jesus' life orally. And then there were also some written documents in that day. Um, we know that the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark are written by this time. Paul has written some New Testament letters and, and, and people had written down some personal accounts of Jesus. We know this, like they'd write down an account, Jesus healed me and here's what he did or Jesus cast a demon out of here, me and here's what it was like or, you know, I, I was there for a certain miracle, I saw it and it would be written down. So there was oral tradition and there was written documents and then there were eyewitness accounts. So Luke, Luke spent much of his time with eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus, like, like Peter. And he might have asked Peter, you know, like, what was it like when Jesus walked on the water and you didn't, you know? Like, what was that like? What did it, what did it feel like? What did it look like? He, he would have interviewed, uh, like, Jesus' brothers, right? His little brothers, James and Jude. And maybe he asked him, you know, like, you know, you guys knew Jesus. He was your brother. And, you know, people say he never sinned. Like, is that true? Because if anybody knew, like you would, you know, did he ever pick on you? Did he ever thunk you? You know, what, what was he like as a, as a big brother? And, and he would have interviewed Mary because he knows things about Mary that no other gospel reveals. And, and he maybe asked Mary, you know, like, what was it like when the angel uh, revealed that you would give birth? 
as a virgin, like, how did that feel? And uh, how, you know, so what was Joseph's reaction, you know, when you, when you told him? And, and then he would have interviewed people that Jesus healed, like maybe sat down and said, you know, I, like, tell me all about it. I'm a doctor, you know, what were your, what were your symptoms? And, and what did Jesus do? And how did you feel afterwards? And maybe he hears a story about a guy in the next town and, and who claims to have had a demon cast out. So he, he goes to that town and he tracks that guy down. And then while he's there, he hears that there's a family who lives about 10 days away who, were, who claimed to be at the feeding of the 5,000. So then he goes over there and he goes into that town and interviews them. And then he hears like, you know, one of the shepherds at Jesus' birth was, was still alive. He was retired on the other side of the country, you know. And he's got to get those facts. So he travels over there and this is what he does. Now remember, Remember, it's been about 30 years since Jesus ascended to heaven. 30 years. And his opportunity to interview eyewitnesses is closing. Let me just give you, like, it's, it's hard for us to totally imagine, but it would, it would be kind of like this. If the average person only lived to be 40 to 42 years old, and the event happened 30 years ago, can you see that there's not a lot of people alive now who were there when Christ was around? It would be like this. How many of you were alive and can remember details about President Reagan's re-election landslide in, the November, in November of 1984? Like how many of you can remember that? You can remember details. And now, okay, leave your hand up. Leave your hand up. How many of you can remember that? So you could pass it on. Hands up. But, but if you're over 40, put your hand down. All right, so who... No, Danny, put your hand down. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> so can, right, because if you're over 40, you're probably gone at this point, all right? So can you see, like, see, so most people are, if they were over 10 years old when Jesus was alive, they're gone now, most of them. So a few of them around. So it's getting, his, his window of opportunity to interview people who are still alive is closing quickly. So he's kind of in a hurry, right? Because he can't, he can't go on the internet and look at videos on YouTube of, of like Jesus walking on the water. There's none of that stuff. He can't go on Wikipedia and read all the misinformation about Jesus' life. And so, you know, and what's really interesting to me is here's this guy who tracks down eyewitnesses and he interviews them. And 2,000 years later, people come along and they read the Gospel of Luke and then they say, I don't believe it, right? And you say, why don't you believe it? Nah, I read it. I don't believe it. I don't think it's true. Right? Like, oh, did you investigate? Did, did you talk to Mary? Did you talk to Peter? No. Have you really investigated facts? No. But we're so quick to write off somebody who did. This is a man who investigated, who, who interviewed, who talked to people who were followers of Jesus. And verse 3 says this, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. When I was a freshman in high school, I was somebody who was completely, completely ignorant to the facts of Jesus. And then God's Holy Spirit began to work in my heart. It wasn't me. It was the Spirit of God who began to stir my heart to seek after God. But I knew almost nothing about Jesus. But God was moving in my soul, and so I began to investigate Jesus. I got a Bible and, and, and read things like the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John, and, and I started, you know, um, reading books on the Bible, and I started talking to some Christians at, at school, and I started investigating 
Jesus Christ. In fact, I would tell you that I, I still investigate Christ today. I still read books about the gospel. I still read articles and books on science and cosmology and history. And I, I, I love to listen to NPR because like, no, sorry, but nobody's more anti-Christian than NPR. And so, you know, if I want to hear objections to the gospel, then I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. And so I, I love to listen to NPR and I love to hear people deny the gospel and deny Jesus. I want to hear them firsthand talk about that so I can wrestle with that and think about like, so, you know, what's true and what's not true here. This is kind of what Luke's doing, except he, he's doing it with firsthand sources. And then the Holy Spirit leads him to write all of this down. And I'm so glad that he did because 2,000 years later, we're going to have the opportunity to learn from this investigation. And Luke's, Luke's gospel is, is very unique in some ways. Like, um, I've got it in your notes, but you've probably heard this before, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are what we call the synoptic gospels. Um, synoptic means um, to see together. So they kind of see together 60% of the material in Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, is, is in common. It's been said that reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a lot like watching the nightly news um, on one of the big three networks, ABC, CBS, NBC. Most of the news is the same, and it comes from the same sources, just with a little different perspective, maybe a different reporter, but a lot of it is the same. On the other hand, the Gospel of John, 90% of the Gospel of John is unique only to the gospel of John. But the reason I want to study Luke is because one, it's written from a Gentile point of view, but also Luke is arranged almost entirely chronological. It's sequential, which is very helpful when you're studying the life of Christ, where the other three gospels are arranged more theologically. Sometimes they pull things out of sequence because they're trying to make a point. In Luke, there are 41 sections that are exclusive to Luke. You won't find them in any other gospel. So, for instance, it provides the only information we have about Jesus as a young boy, only in Luke. It gives us the most detail about the women who followed Jesus. So we'll meet uh, women like Mary and Martha. Um, Luke has been called the gospel that lifts up the role of women in Christianity more than any other book. So we'll be able to see this in there. Um, we'll meet Zacchaeus, right? A wee little man, and he's only in the book of Luke. If you're a, if you're a story lover, two-thirds of Jesus' known um, parables are in the book of Luke, and there's some exclusives to Luke only, like the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. We'll be looking at those. Liberal theologians like to point out that the Gospel of Luke talks about the, the poor, more than any other gospel. And it points to Jesus as being poor and that, that God loves the poor and that we are to help the poor more than any other gospel. The irony is that God used a rich man to write about the fact that Jesus loves the poor. And this again is part of the gift that God has given to us in this book. So, a little bit about our plan moving out as we go through the book of Luke. I want to challenge you to be involved in three ways. The mistake that you could make is to think that the way we're going to do this is you'll come on the weekend and you'll take a few notes and I'll even fill in most of the blanks for you and then you'll go on your way. This is not the way that the book of Luke will change your life. The way that the book of Luke will change your life is if you get more involved. So the first thing I want to encourage you to think about is to personally be reading the Bible during this series. 
Remember what I said? You could read it in a week. If you've just read 15 to 20 minutes a day, you could read the gospel in a week. So you're going to have a chance to read the Gospel of Luke many, many times during this series. And I hope that you do that. And I hope that you follow along as well. On Facebook each week, on Monday, I'll be posting the passage so you can read there and follow along. I would even encourage you to think about memorizing passages from the book of Luke. On the back side of your notes at the bottom is a grow group guide, but you can always look at that as well and think about it. You could talk about it as a family or with your friends, but reading the Bible. Here's the second thing you need to do, and that is church participation. So join us each weekend and, and get some teaching and let's worship uh, through the book of Luke together. I'll tell you this, if you join us every weekend for the book of Luke, you will have built a habit of attending church on the weekend. Uh, and then lastly, um, get in a grow group. Uh, if in, in a grow group, it's a chance for us to get together. In our group, we eat a meal together. We discuss the gospel, the sermon together. You can ask questions about the sermon. We can live it out together. If you're not in a group, I would just encourage you, this would be a very strategic time to get in a group. You can call the office. You can talk to one of the pastors and say, I'd love to be in a group. Maybe you'd like to open your home. We're looking for a couple of homes right now. We need to add some more groups. If you're open to that, let us know about that as well. We could use a couple more homes. If you're not in a group, get in a group. So in closing, here's what you need to know. This series is about 100 sermons long. Right now, it is 100 sermons exactly, okay? We're going to take a few breaks along the way. Um, we'll probably stop for a couple of holidays, inject a little uh, small short series every now and then. So my guess is it's going to take us about two and a half years, all right? So now just, just think about, wow, hold on. Yeah. You're, you're clapping now, um, all right? But let me ask you this question. Imagine how your life is going to change in the next two and a half years. Just think about that for a minute. If you're in school, what, what grade do you hope to be in in two and a half years? <laughs> if, if you're single, you could be married in two and a half years. Some of you, you could be married and have kids in two and a half years, right? I mean, if you're engaged, you could be, and you could be married, you could have a kid, you could have, you could have two kids, in two and a half years. One of them could be named Theophilus in two and a half years. Like, if you're starting to lose your hair, you, you could completely lose it in two and a half years, right? Give me God. Well, let me ask you this question. What would you like to see God do in your heart, in your soul, in your family, in your marriage? What would you like to see God do in your life in the next two and a half years? Let me put it to you this way. Here's a way to, let's just reverse this. Looking back two and a half years ago, if you could go back two and a half years and do it over again, what do you wish you would have done differently? What do you, what do you wish that you had started two and a half years ago that you didn't do? Maybe you should think about that. Maybe it's daily Bible reading. Maybe it's sharing your faith. Maybe it's getting involved in serving other people. What is it? What is it as you look back two and a half years ago, what do you wish that you had started doing two and a half years ago when you think about all the benefits it could have given you today? 
See, my challenge to you is let's not be the same people in two and a half years. I don't want to close this series two and a half years from now and look back and go, oh, I wish I had, I wish I had, I wish I wish I'd read my Bible. I wish I'd gotten in a grow group. I wish I, let's not do that. Let's decide now. Let's decide today that we're going to embrace the gospel and we're going to invite God to come in. And we're not going to be people who are like, you know, oh, we're just messed up people and that's just the way it is. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to come in and sanctify us and make us holy so that we are a blessing to our family, that we're a blessing to our parents and to our friends and to the people that God brings into our life, that we are a blessing, that we make a difference.